As you're seated, would you open the Bible, please? The Word of God to Genesis chapter 40. We are on chapter 40 of 50 chapters of Genesis, studying together for for many weeks now, the beginnings. Let's read together. Genesis 40, we'll read the chapter, beginning in verse 1. Sometime after this, that's after chapter 39, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody, in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches, and as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit." When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Father, thank you that you never forget us, Lord, as we've been singing and being reminded from your word, God, that you are always with us, with us, your people. And God, if there are any here who do not know Jesus, Lord, we pray that they would see their need to repent of their sins and believe in him. God, that we would be encouraging those around us to that. And Lord, you teach us through your word how to be encouraged as we wait on you for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we last left Joseph after he was thrown into prison. And we've seen Joseph as a very faithful man to the Lord. How did he end up in prison if he's such a faithful man to the Lord? 
We remember his brothers didn't like him, and he had a couple of dreams that worsened their hatred of him and their jealousy, so that he was taken from the family. He was taken from his father, his parent, and thrown into a pit. And then he was traded down in Egypt as a slave, traded from the pit to Potiphar, and served, he served in Potiphar's house as a servant, a slave, until Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of attempted rape, so he was thrown back into the pit in prison. So from parent to pit to Potiphar to pit, <laughs> he hasn't done anything to deserve any of it. But it's all happened, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to us at a human level because none of it seems to be helping him get to the place where God said he was going to be one day, where people are bowing to him, or he's ruling. Even his family is bowing to him as, as a king, not, not as a god, but as, a, as someone in charge, a ruler. He's sitting here in the middle of a foreign land with a, a different language, different customs, even different religion than he's been accustomed to, than, than the true God that he believes in. And Psalm 105, we talked about last week, tells us that Joseph's feet were being hurt with the fetters, the chains that were uh, chained to his feet, that his neck had a collar of iron on it while he was in prison. Um, Lord willing, next week in chapter 41, we'll find out he hasn't been able to shave, and he's wearing rags. So really, um, life isn't very good for Joseph right now. It's really kind of terrible. It's an awful existence right now for Joseph, who's been so faithful to God. We, we touched on it last week. He knows that what's coming is going to be great. What, what's coming at the end is, is going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful, but this is the farthest thing from great right now. Like Joseph, fellow disciples of Jesus, fellow sons and daughters of the king, we know that what's coming is going to be great. What's going to come and, and what Jesus is preparing for us one day is going to be better than we could ever imagine in heaven with God. But like Joseph, we may be looking at our life and going, it doesn't match. <laughs> I'm not seeing how this is getting there. How is this leading to that? It doesn't match what I'm seeing is going to be, what it's going to be like with God. And if Jesus is with me now, why doesn't it look more like that now? Is it even heading in the right direction? We're waiting for the Lord right now. We're waiting for what He's doing. We're waiting for what will come. And we don't know how it's going to happen. We don't know when, but it's God's promise that it will happen. And so we hold on to that as Joseph is doing. Though we're probably not as faithful as Joseph is in this account of his life. He's at the lowest point of his life. He's in prison. And now he's in charge of other prisoners. And there's no reason to think that Joseph just can see the future, he understands why. Like he can see all of the parts and how this is all going to fit together to end up where he's supposed to be. He, he, he must be racking his brain. Like, you know, did I sin in some way? Did, did I mess up God's plan somehow? <laughs> Maybe the two dreams were misinterpreted. By the way, when, when you read chapter 37, Joseph tells his dreams to his brothers and then his brothers and his father. Joseph isn't the one who interprets those dreams. Did you notice that when we went through that? His brothers were the ones that said, look, this is what you're saying? And his father said, you know, Joseph, come on now. <laughs> he didn't even know what was going on. So, so maybe he's thinking, you know, maybe they all misunderstood the dreams. Maybe it was misinterpreted. Maybe, maybe the dreams weren't from God. Maybe I didn't get the right message. Or maybe it wasn't for me. Maybe I disqualified myself. I mean, there have to be doubts in his mind, right? Wouldn't there be for you? I know there would be for me. 
There have to be struggles in view of what he was expecting from God's word and, and the promises that God had given Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and suddenly Joseph is going, <laughs> what happened? But we don't see any of those doubts. And we said last week that's because the focus of this life of Joseph is really on God, who God is and what God is doing. So why are there no doubts expressed? Well, I believe that there are no doubts expressed because that's such a crucial part of the lesson here from Joseph's life. Never doubt God. God, can, God, God should never be doubted. God is always faithful. So it's not that Joseph never had any doubts or anything. I don't believe it's because, you know, he was a human just like us. But the, the teaching here is God is true and faithful. His steadfast love endures forever. His word endures forever. So here in chapter 40, we follow Joseph along to four encounters as he waits for God. And we'll encounter these with Joseph as he's waiting and as we're waiting on God to bring us home. To, to fulfill his promises to us. The first encounter, number one, in verses one through four, is that we encounter new responsibilities. New responsibilities for Joseph. Some time has passed. Uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker committed offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. So, you know, when I look at that job title, cupbearer, that seems kind of easy, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm the one that holds the cup. Oh, he's ready for it. I give it to him and he drinks and then I take it back and hold it some more. <laughs> There was a little bit more to the job than that. The position was extremely high-ranking. It was an honorable position. The, the cupbearer was one of the closest confidants of the king himself, or in this case, in Egypt, the pharaoh himself. He's got the king's ear. The king's life is in his hand. His primary duty is to give the king his cup to drink from after it was safe, but he had to be intensely and unshakably loyal to the king. If there's any doubt at all, he's going to be removed from his post and somebody else brought in. Now, he could be given other tasks. We see other um, cupbearers in Scripture, even um, leading part of an army or delivering a message from the king. But this is the importance of Potiphar. The baker would have been important to Pharaoh as well. You remember how important Joseph was to, to Potiphar? In, in Potiphar's house, Joseph served. And the only thing he couldn't do was touch Potiphar's food, Right? The baker makes Pharaoh's food. I mean, this is, this is a crucial job. This is an important job. It was the only thing that Joseph couldn't touch from the Egyptians that, that he had control of everything else. But like the cupbearer, the, the baker had to be trusted just about above anybody else. The one making the food, the one making the drink. These two men, verse 1 says, committed an offense against Pharaoh. What did they do? Again, this is one of those questions, like we, we, our curiosity just rises, <laughs> what would it take for these two to be mis, uh, distrusted and removed from their position? We, we don't know, but the same word is used for both. The word for offense is, is missing the mark. They messed up in some way. It didn't look like they were intentionally trying to, to do something wrong. They, they started out well, but they just missed the mark. They fell short. So they were sent to prison. Now prison, as we've talked about before, was not the prison that we think of today where you just sort of sit around. A well-lit, sanitized area and you, you just sit around and maybe you get cable TV and maybe you get library books. It was either forced labor, like we talked about last week, in a defensive outpost somewhere or, or somewhere close. It wasn't, it wasn't just sit there and that's it for the rest of your life. It was a holding cell for either for your work to be done or, or completed or for you, your punishment to come. 
You were going to be punished in some way. It's just sit and wait until that happens. And so it wasn't clean. It wasn't temperature controlled. It wasn't full of light and air. There wasn't a respect for human life or dignity as those who believe in the scriptures teach that human beings are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity even when they've been found guilty of committing an offense. That, that just wasn't there. You're garbage now. You're, you're outcast. You know, you're, you're in prison. You're going to be punished or even killed. And there's a strong emphasis here in these verses. I tried to emphasize them a little bit as we, as we read through on prison, on confinement, on custody, master's house. The words appear nine different times in just these eight verses. Because the picture that it's painting is you're in a hopeless, helpless place. You've reached the end of what you can consider the world, the planet. Nothing else exists for you except this prison until you're either brought out and punished or killed. There's no hope for you now. That's the picture that that keeps being painted here in the confinement, the prison, the custody. So that's where Joseph is when these two men are brought into the prison. And they become Joseph's responsibility. More responsibility. The captain of the guard appoints Joseph to be with them and to attend them, verse 4 says, and they continued some time in custody. Now, the captain of the guard, that's the same title used for Potiphar. It's probably Potiphar because uh, uh, verse 7 says this prison is a place inside his master's house. That's who Potiphar was to Joseph. So, this is probably in uh, Potiphar's compound, not really in his home like we think of when we read the word house, but in his compound that this prison exists. That's where Joseph is. And he's there for a long time. These two come in for some time, and there's no calendar to keep track of time. They don't know how long they're there. But Joseph is in charge of caring for them. The word is attended to them. It's a careful, caring work. And as if life hasn't gone strangely horrible enough for Joseph... Now he has these two high-profile prisoners that he's got to care for, attend to, look after. And it's really kind of instructive, really helpful for us, because as we look at our life and we understand life is so full of busyness, full of business, full of family and work and responsibilities, and, and there's so much that's happening all of the time, we still experience disappointment. Things don't go right. Things can get difficult. But what we often do is we, we, we tend to think, well, that gives me an excuse not to do what God's told me to do. You know, God brings a difficulty into my life or things happen and I don't uh, allow for that to have been God's work. I just think, well, that just happened. And then, well, because I'm dealing with this now, well, I don't have to do what God says, what God tells me to do with my life, what I should be doing with my time. Now I can just devote myself to getting out of this trouble. But here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He teaches us, we know, that if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. He says, meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, our flesh, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, 
who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So he's saying, this is for us who have believed in Jesus Christ. We've, we've turned away from our sins. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. We're groaning in our flesh, wanting to go home to be with him. We want our, our immortal bodies to be clothed with so that we can be in heaven with him. So Paul says, therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say. We are confident and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he says, so because of that, we sit around and do nothing waiting until then. Now somebody says. He says, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And this is what he says in verse 14, just to wrap this, this section up. He says, Christ's love compels us. It's Christ's love that pushes us onward, because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, why? That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So that's what Paul is teaching us. See, while we're waiting for what's to come, we don't sit around doing nothing. We make it our aim to please our God, our Savior, our Lord. It's, it's his love that pushes us forward, that motivates us, compels us forward while we wait. And so while we sit and wait for the Lord to come back to, to bring us home to him, we don't complain about our life. Well, we do, but we shouldn't. <laughs> we don't excuse ourselves from doing what God calls us to do. There's a love-motivated obedience to please Him and to obey Him and to do what He's called us to do because He has saved us. Now, keep that in mind. We're not doing these things because we want to be saved. We want Him to bring us home because He has saved us and we already know He's going to bring us home. Then we obey. So these new responsibilities are added to Joseph. Instead of saying, oh, this is too much. God, why are you doing this to me? Or I can't handle any of this. Or, you know, God, I, I'm just going to sit here and wait this out. And I'm not going to do anything until you get me out of here. You know, he serves even in the middle of his lowest point. So after these new responsibilities we encounter in number two, verses five through eight, two difficult dreams. The new responsibilities are now the two dreams. In one night, each of these high-profile prisoners have a dream. And the two men, the next morning, verse 6 says, are troubled. Now that word troubled means dejected. They're sad. In fact, the word means pitiful. These two guys are pitiful looking. They've had a bad set of circumstances like Joseph has had. Not the same, but similar. And now they've had a dream, and they can't figure out what it means, so they're ruined. Very much unlike Joseph. So Joseph sees him down like this. And he figures, well, it's just sadness for being in prison. It's none of my business. I'll just go on about my day, right? No, he asks them, why are your faces downcast today? He's caring for prisoners. He's caring for these two men. He notices and he takes the time to ask. And, and he must have built up a level of trust with them because they actually trust him enough to answer the question. They say, well, we had a dream and... We, we don't know what it means. Even in the middle of Joseph's low point in his life, he's looking out for other people. He's caring for others. Now, in Egypt, dreams were important enough to them that there were actually people that made a living out of going around meant. You know, pay me some money and I'll tell you what your dream meant. 
And a lot of times they were self-fulfilling, right? They weren't actually seeing into the future. They were just, well, (laughs) your dream means this, and the person would do that, and there you go. But after hearing the problem, Joseph looks at these two dejected, pitiful, high-profile prisoners and says, get over it, guys! (laughs) Dreams don't work out. Look what happened to my dreams. Look where I'm at. Forget your dreams. He says, suck it up. Make the best of it. You got some lemons? Make some lemonade, right? (laughs) No, he doesn't doesn't hurl a bunch of worldly wisdom on them like that. He he says, no, interpretations belong to God. Not the silly magicians that you'd be looking for right now, the so-called wise men of Egypt. Tell me. I'm not God, but I know who God is, and he's gonna, he can tell us what these dreams mean. And you don't know him, so you can't go to him to ask him. By the way, dream interpretation is not a reliable way to discern what you should do. One commentator put it this way, God or the devil may influence dreams, as may also poor digestion. <laughs> but in this case, it was God. Our reliable word from God and what he wants us to do is hear. It doesn't come through dreams. I'm not going to say that God never gives dreams. Obviously, he does. He did hear. But Joseph is so absolutely convinced of who God is and what God is capable of that he says, tell me the dream, and God will tell you the interpretation. Joseph doesn't need to resort to worldly wisdom that sees random chance or cruel fate as the director of our life and what happens to us. Oh, you just have to learn to deal with it. He understands what we talked about before, the sovereignty, the wisdom, and the goodness of the faithful, living, almighty God. So it's important for us to see that Joseph doesn't say, I'll, I'll tell you what they mean. I, I know, I can do that. He asks for the dream so that God can reveal the interpretation, so he can minister to them. So there's no self-pity for Joseph. In the middle of these circumstances, in the middle of these horrible things, there's no self-pity for Joseph. He's trusting in God. He has a concern for others in the middle of his trouble. Romans 3, sorry, Romans 12, verse 3 tells us, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, you're wondering, why did you tell us that verse in the middle of this? Well, a lot of times we read those verses and we rightly think, well, then that means I shouldn't be arrogant or prideful. And that's correct. But if that's all that that meant, then Paul could have just said that. Included within that command is the opposite of what the world would be telling you to tell yourself at this moment in the lowest point of your life. What would the world be telling us? I deserve better than this, right? I'm better than this. I deserve better. I deserve more. I didn't earn or deserve this trouble. It just happened, and I should have more. I should get more than what I'm getting right now. That's thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. As if we're in control of our destiny, as if God hasn't brought things into our life, as if I have earned some kind of better treatment (laughs) than what God is giving me. Instead, we should think with a sober judgment, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, we should be thinking more like Joseph. I don't know why all this has happened. I don't know where all this is going, but God does. I don't know when it's going to get better. I don't know even if it's going to get better. 
rather than demand more for myself, rather than thinking more highly of myself than I should, I'll rightly base my belief and my trust on God with the sober judgment of His Word according to the faith that He's given me to endure whatever this is, whyever it's happening. And it's not an accident that in Romans 12, directly after that verse, are the verses that teach us all about caring about other people. Serving in the body of Christ as different members with different gifts and all of us serving in proportion to our faith with enthusiasm and joy. The verses before it introduce it, telling us we're living sacrifices. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. See, brothers and sisters, just because we're going through a hard time doesn't excuse us from doing what God has told us to do. Love Him and love others. Jesus didn't do that. He, he, he didn't give up on that when he was going through difficulty, did he? Praise God for that. You know, during his persecution, his suffering, his death, he didn't say, well, <laughs> you guys are on your own right now. <laughs> I'm dealing with something right now. So we don't fall for the wisdom of the world that says when we're hurting, forget about everything else. Forget about everybody else. Let's just sit around like the cupbearer and the baker did and just be pitiful and dejected. The contrast between these two men and, and Joseph couldn't be more clear. But Joseph also didn't grow in pride and say, come on, guys, get over it, <laughs> right? Look what, I, look what I'm going through. I'm here with you. I'm able to overcome this. Why can't you? Suck it up, right? He's, he's not giving that advice. He cares for them. He ministers for them. Even though his circumstances are really worse than theirs, he's still ministering for them. Even when his difficulty is bad, his worse, he's still caring for them, loving them. So we won't fall for the world that tells us if we're going to care for others, we have to care for ourselves first. There's no way for Joseph to care for himself. There's nothing for him to draw from except the Lord. All that the Lord is doing for him, through him, to him, the Lord is with him. The Lord would care for him, so he's going to care for others because God tells him to. The Lord is with us. He will care for us. And so we're going to care for others the way he tells us to. And by the way, so many in this body are doing that in so many wonderful ways. So many here are serving. I know my family has even benefited even this past week from the service from some of you. It's amazing how God is working among his people, caring for so many people. Thank you for those who care, for those who serve, for those who are involved in people's lives. Well, after the new responsibilities, after the two difficult dreams, we encounter number three, verses 9 through 19. We're going to see now this, this encounter with true interpretations. There was the new responsibilities, the two dreams, now true interpretations. The cupbearer speaks up first. There was a vine, there were three branches. You know how dreams go, right? I mean, things happen in dreams that just don't happen in real life, right? <laughs> You're falling off of a cliff and then you just wake up and everything's fine, right? Nobody's had that dream, right? Or, yeah, yeah, probably so many have. But he says, look, I mean, there were, there were three branches on this vine. Suddenly, boom, there are buds on the branches. And then suddenly, there's not, they're not buds, they blossom. And they don't stay blossoms for long because suddenly they become grapes. And he's watching all this happen that takes so much time in life. Suddenly they're grapes and then suddenly they're ripe. And suddenly I'm holding Pharaoh's cup in my hand. <laughs> and then I squeeze the grapes right into the cup and suddenly it's fermented and it's wine and I give it to Pharaoh and he drinks it. And th What's going on? What does this mean? Now we don't have any kind of pause between the cupbearer telling the dream and Joseph interpreting, but 
Joseph has already given the glory to God. It's, it's God that's going to tell the, the interpretation, not me. But Joseph explains as we read that in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Right now, your head is downcast. You're, you're dejected and you're, and you're sorrowful. But in three days, he's going to lift up your head and he's going to restore you to your position. Now, because it's such a close position to Pharaoh, Joseph knows that if the cupbearer makes a suggestion or a request, Pharaoh is at least going to listen, if not grant the request, right? So he makes a plea for his relief. You've got this good news. Things are good for you right now. Things are looking up. In three days, you're getting out of here. You're going to get back. So it's only three days away. Remember me. (laughs) Remember me that I've done this kindness for you. I've given you this encouragement. I've told you ahead of time. And remember that I'm here as a Hebrew in Egypt where I shouldn't be. I was stolen. And I shouldn't be in prison because I've done nothing wrong. Help me get out of this house. Work with Pharaoh. I'm innocent of all the charges and everything that's happened. Now, we may question, Joseph, why are you doing that? Why don't you just stay and trust God? Well, I think he's still trusting God. But he sees this as maybe a possible way to get out of the prison, right? He doesn't have special revelation about God's timing any more than we have. He knows the end state, and he doesn't know how he's going to get there, so he sees an opportunity. Maybe this is how God's going to grant my release. But it wasn't God's will, at least yet, was it? When we're in the middle of hard times, we're at a low point, even, even our lowest point, when we're questioning why things are happening, why come things aren't happening, we may be tempted to think, how could this possibly be God's will? How could it be God's will that I'm suffering like this? How could it be God's will that I'm going through things like this? But see, if Joseph is released right now at this point, he's probably going to head right back home to Canaan, to the promised land, to be with his family, and in a couple of years' time, they're all going to die in the famine. And that's the end of the line of the chosen people of God. There'll be no one that understands Pharaoh's dreams. There'll be no way to prepare, nowhere for the family to go to get food. They're all just going to die. So it was absolutely within God's will that Joseph be in the middle of a prison and to be having to care about other people more than himself. So when he tried to get out, which was legitimate, God said, no, (laughs) at least not yet. So we've got to be careful that we don't try to comfort ourselves or other people in the middle of trials and and troubles and afflictions with, ah, this too shall pass. That's that's one that we hear a lot. Ah, this, this too shall pass. Imagine if Jesus had tried to comfort himself in the garden that way. You know, I'm taking on the sin of the world. Well, God will get me through this. It'll, It'll change. It didn't change until he died from it, right? It it didn't pass away until he passed away from it. Sometimes we go through things that will never pass out of our life until we pass out of this life. And that's a hard truth. That's a a hard pill to swallow. But this is is what we see in the Word. And so, again, back to 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, Paul teaches us we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. This is what Paul's talking about, the Christian life. (laughs) So that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. 
And he's setting this example of suffering for himself, but so that he can minister to other people, so that things can be good for them. So he, he continues and he says in verse 16 of, of 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And if you're familiar with Paul's light and momentary afflictions, <laughs> there was beatings, there was shame, there was stoning to which it, within an inch of his life. There was, there was shipwreck, there was so many more persecutions and more, but we don't lose heart, we, we, we don't give up, we don't, we don't just fall apart. We fix our eyes on our Savior, on what's not seen right now. Because He is eternal, and our hope is eternal. God's Word is eternal. We hold fast to it. So Joseph asks for help from the cupbearer. But importantly, Joseph doesn't transfer his hope to that man. His hope remains in the Lord, even as he asks for help. And so we do not lose heart as we wait. And we don't transfer our hope to what we can do, what we can accomplish, and how others can help. Even though we're appreciative of people's help, we don't depend on that. We, we keep our hope on our Lord. So the baker hears the interpretation also, and he gets excited, right? His dream is similar enough to the cupbearer's. His dream has three baskets instead of three vines and, or of the branches on the vines, and the baskets all hold baked goods together. That, that's what he used to do. He used to make baked goods, and they're stacked on top of each other on his head. That's how they used to carry the baskets. It, it involves his profession like the cupbearer's did, but this time there's nothing mysterious about this dream. There's nothing miraculous that happens where things are just going along that don't happen in real life. This is happening. He's standing there, and the birds are eating the goods out of, his, out of his basket. So God, again, reveals to Joseph the meaning of that dream. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, and he starts to lift up his head in, in excitement because here it comes. But then Joseph said, from you. And he will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh. Now, it's, this is where it gets a little bit graphic, <laughs> and we're not going to get all, into all of the little gory details, but the picture that I had in the past as I read this was that he would be hung, like we think of hanging, like from a gallows, but that's not what the Egyptians did. They would impale you on a post. Your head may come off, <laughs> but the birds would just start eating your flesh, and you were left there to be an example and a lesson to everybody else. Don't do what that guy did. <laughs> that's what happens. So this is gruesome. This is horrific news for the baker. But Joseph is honest in telling him the truth. This is the message God's given, and I'm relaying it to you. You need to know the truth. Would it have been more compassionate just to tell him, oh, I don't know what that one means. <laughs> Would it have been more compassionate just to tell him, you know, um, it'll, it'll be okay. <laughs> don't worry about it. Some say, yeah, that would have been more compassionate than just laying it on him like that. Look, this is what's going to happen. But the loving thing to do is to speak the truth, right? The loving thing for us to do, brothers and sisters, is to tell people that we are all sinners and we are all destined for God's wrath, His punishment in hell forever, and that's a terrible thing to find out, and that's a terrible thing to think, but that's the truth. And they need to hear the truth because the truth is that Jesus took that punishment from us. 
when he lived his perfect life and he died on the cross and suffered for us, but then rose again to conquer death and sin. What does all that mean? Come talk to me after the service. If you don't know this, Jesus, if that sounds strange, and what does that, all of that mean? Let's talk. The baker at that point should fall before God who knows and who sees and who reveals the future. The sovereign, the wise, the good God. Maybe he did, but we don't, we don't see it. We don't hear anything about that. The point, though, from the story is God's ability, God's all-knowingness, his, his wisdom, his all-seeing, and Joseph's faithfulness to turn to the Lord, to trust in the Lord, and even to proclaim him while he waits, to minister to other people and to, to proclaim the Lord and his goodness. Note that that's all he does. You know, we might be tempted to say, Joseph, this is a perfect opportunity. You know, share the, share the gospel. What are you doing? Why don't you tell him about this Lord more? Why don't you try to evangelize him? And, and he has told him about the Lord. He's revealed the Lord to him as much as he's able to at this point. Joseph can't make the baker believe. We, we can't make people believe, but we can tell them. We can give them the truth. That's what we're called to do. So let's be faithful with the opportunities that we get. Well, finally, number four, we have looked at new responsibilities and two dreams and true interpretations. Now we get to who follows through. Number four, verses 20 to 23, who follows through. Three days later, it's Pharaoh's birthday. Birthdays for kings were celebrated with banquets and feasts and, and even pardons or amnesties for, for enemies of the king, if he's so inclined. So he brings out his two high-profile prisoners uh, they had offended him in some time past, but just like God said to Joseph, just like the dream said, the cupbearer is restored and the baker is executed. Now, it had to be somewhat comforting to Joseph, not that the baker was executed, but, but that he was able to understand from God the interpretation of those dreams and it happened just the way that God had revealed. It had to be encouraging to him. Because, like we said, he's still got the two dreams that he had <laughs> that he's waiting on to be fulfilled. And if those doubts were still there about maybe they were misunderstood, maybe they were misinterpreted, maybe they're for somebody else. No, they were understood correctly, but you're still waiting for them. Pharaoh follows through with what he's supposed to do. Joseph follow through, follows through with what he's supposed to do. But verse 23, we see that the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. And just to drive it home even more, it says, but forgot him. The cupbearer did not follow through with what he was supposed to do. And verse 1 of the next chapter shows just how complete that forgetting was. Joseph is stuck in prison that day and the next day and a week and a month and a year and two years later. And at this point, he doesn't know it's going to be two years, but in, in, in his mind, he may be looking at this humanly and, and thinking, well, that was my last chance. Humanly speaking, what other chance is there? That was it. I'm supposed to be out of here. He's been betrayed three times now, betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery, betrayed by Potiphar's wife into false accusations, and he's just been betrayed by the cupbearer. Right when you think it couldn't get any worse for Joseph, boom, it drops another level. As far as you can see, the chances of getting out are gone. But there's not a hopelessness. Why not? Because God is working in these events, and, and Joseph is continuing to trust the Lord, as far as we can see in the passage again. I mean, ultimately, that is what he's doing, but there had to be these questions and these doubts, but God is working through all of these things to prepare him for what's coming at the end. 
You think, well, God, why did you have to use prison? <laughs> right? Why did it have to be so hard? Think about Moses' preparation for leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. What was his preparation? 40 years of living in the house of Pharaoh and then 40 years living in the desert taking care of animals. That was Moses' preparation. Think about David's preparation for being king. He's the youngest son in the family that nobody thinks much about. He's out taking care of the sheep in the middle of the wilderness. And then he starts running for his life from the king who wants to kill him because God says he's the next king. That's his preparation. Peter's preparation for being an apostle was a fisherman. Paul's preparation for being an apostle was a self-righteous religious fanatic. God uses different people and he prepares us in different ways for the things he's got for us and, and for the end goal. Ultimately, his end goal, his ultimate goal for all of us is the same thing, to be with him in heaven in glory, sinless, just like our Savior Jesus. And all along the way, the goal is the same too, to become more and more like Jesus practically in our life every day. But he does different things with each of us. He prepares each of us differently, uses different tools on us. The goal is not to get us out of these problems, out of all of these troubles, so that we can be just like we were before, but to bring us through them, to change us so that we're different than we were before. See, brothers and sisters, the waiting, the trouble is not part of the lesson. It is the lesson. It is what God has for us. It's not the problem. It's the solution to our problem. <laughs> our real problem is that we're just not quite all the way there yet on God's uh, goal for us. We haven't gotten quite all the way on board yet. We've got all the things that we want to do. We've got all of our plans. And, you know, this is where I'm heading. This is where I'm going. This is, this is my goal. The troubles come and it throws us off of that path and it, it disrupts our plan. And then we have to stop and we have to wait. And that's when we get frustrated thinking, God, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm, I'm going this way. I want to go this way. And you've got me over here waiting and suffering and what's going on. But that's just it. We're doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. God gets us off, to our, off, off on, the, on the side of, of our plans, but it's right in the middle of His plan, right where we're supposed to be. So we wait patiently on God through the trouble, but we're not doing nothing. We do what He says that we should have been doing all along. All the things that He had told us to do. Now, well, my plan's not working out, but God still is, so I can be doing what He told me to do. I read in some of the commentaries, this is the point where God starts working in Joseph's life. And I went, what? <laughs> now God starts working? God doesn't start working here. He's been working the whole time. You know, if Joseph had thought that way, he probably never would have survived any of what he's gone through. Some people teach, and maybe you've heard this, or maybe you've believed this. You know, if you would just believe more, if you would just have more faith, you could get out of troubles. Right? You could... You just need to trust God more, and then you'll get out of all these problems. That's not the lesson from the Scriptures. We don't see that lesson anywhere in Scriptures, unless it's God's discipline for, for sin, and we need to confess that, and then he, he, will, he will release us from that discipline, but there are still going to be troubles. There's still going to be problems. The lesson here is that God is faithful. He is sovereign. He's wise, and He's good, and the way to respond to Him is like Joseph does. Believing, trusting, having faith in Him. The way to respond is the way that Paul does. When he asks God, take this thorn out of my side, this messenger from Satan. When God tells him no in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
The way to respond is when, what, as how we're instructed in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. He says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so threatened and treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. How could they have done all of that? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So the writer says, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, Hebrews 10.36 says, you will receive what he has promised. That's how we respond. We, we respond rightly as James tells us in James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trial. This is how you can count it joy, because you know what God is doing in it. Not because we just love pain so much, we just love so many troubles. No, we, we count it joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and so let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as we wait for God, as we wait for what He has for us in eternity, we don't just endure. We don't just wait and complain or get upset or just wallow around in self-pity. We don't lose heart. We don't give up. And we don't try to use worldly wisdom. We, we cling to our sovereign, wise, living, loving, almighty God, the good God, who's faithful and loving and true, and He loves us in Jesus. We cling to Him. You have on the back of your notes page a hymn that was written long ago, mid-1800s. I found this hymn recently, and uh, we're not going to try to sing it. We don't have the music for it um, right now, but, but the words are just so instructive for us. That it, it's so honest about life. It says, pain's furnace heat within me quivers. God's breath upon the flame doth blow. Wow. The pain that I'm going through, it just... It's so deep and it's so painful and it's God that's making the flame hotter that's causing this pain. All my heart in anguish shivers and trembles at the fiery glow. The chorus goes, and yet I whisper as God will. And in his hottest fire hold still. And yet I whisper as God will and in his hottest fire hold still. Verse 2 says, he comes and lays my heart all heated on his hard anvil, minded so, yet in his own fair form to beat it. With his great hammer, blow by blow. Verse 3, he takes my softened heart and beats it. The sparks fly off at every blow. He turns it o'er and o'er and heats it and lets it cool and makes it glow. Verse 4 says, he kindles for my profit purely. Affliction's glowing fiery brand. For all his heaviest blows are surely inflicted by a master hand. I will not murmur at the sorrow that only longer lived would be. Then end may come, and that tomorrow, when God hath wrought his will in me. And yet I whisper, as God will. And in his hottest fire holds still. And yet I whisper, as God will, and in his hottest fire holds still. God, this is... We can identify with many of these words. Lord, in ways that life has gone wrong to us, Lord hurts and pains, things that have happened to us, Lord, things that are happening now to us, God, things that we're, people around us, our brothers and sisters are going through, Lord, this can be so painful, this life. Lord, we know that 
nothing comes apart from your hand, Lord. You have a part to play in all of this, God. You're doing this, and yet you're working through it for our good, for our benefit. God, it's not the plan that we have, but it's the plan that you have, and God, your plan is perfect. Lord, I pray that you would work in each of us to submit to that plan. God, that we would grow in our trust in you. Father, that we'd not question your goodness, your, your sovereignty, your wisdom, your character, God, as we endure. Lord, help us to understand that you are so good to us. You're so loving of us, Lord, and you hold us in your hand. God, you're wiping away, you're chiseling away what shouldn't be within us. God, the things that we shouldn't be holding on to, Lord, you're taking them away. God, help us to be grateful. Help us to have joy in that process. God, as we're in pain, as we feel affliction, God, as we see trouble, Lord, we don't depend on worldly wisdom, Lord. We depend on your truth that, that teaches why you're doing that, because of your love, because of your goodness. Father, you've given us your truth, and Lord, you have given us brothers and sisters around us, God, that can help us through, that can care for us through. Father, thank you for Jesus. Lord, he endured the worst kind of suffering. And Lord, he had to do it alone. Father, thank you for his sacrifice, his perfect life and death. God, I pray that you would make us more like him. Lord, that will bring us true joy. That'll bring us a happiness, God, that never passes away because things change or because things don't go the right way. Father, help us to grow in faithfulness to you. You're so good. You're so deserving and worthy of lives lived in worship for you. We pray that you would work that out in us. God, that you'd make us more willing, that we would um, want and desire to do what you've called us to do. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters here, Lord. I pray that you would bless each of them for their love for you and their love for your word. Thank you for most of all, our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.